Hey everybody, Bees with Ben. We have a big episode today because today we are going all the way to the Caribbean, uh, a little uh, island, Tobago. Now, Tobago comprises of the nation Trinidad and Tobago. It's known for its wide sandy beaches and diverse tropical rainforest. It's about 160 kilometres off the coast of uh, the northeast of Venezuela. And I'm really excited because I've got a cool, cool guest on today, Gladstone Solomon. Um, Gladstone is really held high as a beekeeper. Uh, he's been the president of both the Tobago Apicultural Society uh, and the Caribbean Regional Association uh, of Caribbean Beekeepers. Uh, he was born in Trinidad, lives in Tobago. Thank you so much for your time, Gladstone. I really appreciate it. Hi, Ben. Yeah, it's a pleasure chatting with you, man. Uh, thank you. Now, for everyone, we met for the first time over at Appamondia in Montreal. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah, awesome. Correct. Yeah, we met over there, and, mm-hmm. um, and I'm so excited to uh, to have you on because I'm, I'm all rugged up. It's uh, winter here as we record that, and all I'm doing is thinking of the, uh, the beautiful uh, uh, Caribbean weather. <laughs> so how's the weather been treating you, Gladstone? Oh, well, we we just moving into our rain season. Fortunately, unfortunately, we just have two seasons here: you know, a dry season and a wet season. So the first half of the year is usually the dry part. That's when our bees are most active, and we moving into well, we just into the rain season. We are well at rain season. You get most of the rainfall, a little more humid, but our ambient temperature is is uh say thirty one twenty nine thirty one you know in the evening it would go down to mid twenties oh you you make pretty steady you make you're making me jealous of that weather <laughs> that sounds <laughs> that sounds yeah. fantastic now tell me gladstone um yeah. your beekeeping where where did the the whole bee journey start for you oh well, you know with the introduction as you mentioned, I was born in Trinidad. But I've been coming to Tobago, which is, you know, a smaller island, uh, 60,000 people, 22 miles from Trinidad. My dad is from here. I've always liked it. You know, it's small population, uh, not nice, natural. It's not as cosmopolitan as Trinidadian is with 1.3 million. I mean, those are small numbers for you, but big for us. So I'm wanting to come over to Tobago to live. I had to... Uh, conceptualize some some means of generating income. You know, I had studied hotel and tourism formally, but I never really liked the sector. And I had to figure out what am I going to do to sustain myself in Tobago. And as in going through that process, I was uh, 31, 32, somewhere about there. I'm something now where I say you can do the math. <laughs> hey, man, I, I, I stumbled into, on beekeeping. I found myself unconsciously following uh, the flight of a bee. It landed on a cactus flower. And, you know, you, you've heard the term a eureka moment. Well, that was my eureka moment. I'd known nothing about beekeeping before. And I just said, this, you know, unconscious but conscious development in your life kind of difficult to describe but it happened and that's how I got into beekeeping I read everything with BWS on it after that 
got into um uh local course and I just attached myself to beekeepers to anything that had to do with it. I'm hooked, man. Been so for quite a number of years. <laughs> that that's awesome, Gladstone. I absolutely love it. So and so you do uh obviously we've got um this uh coronavirus, COVID nineteen, so obviously that changes things at the moment. But but you you do uh on a normal um times you do like um, safaris with the with the bees like a bee bee safaris yeah correct correct i got this uh this arrangement with you know bees for development from the uk and you know i have a, a deeper relationship with them um but 20 years ago 19 to the year 2000 we had a first safari which basically is a sort of Focus beekeeping holiday. You come to Trinidad and Tobago for 10 nights, 11 days. And um, interestingly, on Trinidad, the bees are Africanized. Trinidad is a little closer to South America, you see? Oh. Seven miles from South America. Okay. So the bees, they Africanized. Uh, but Tobago, it's, it's, we're still European. We're 22 miles upwind. So we have this interesting package uh, it's a small group, five, six, seven, or eight people. Um, and we have itinerary which revolves around beekeeping activities in the morning and in the afternoon, soft ecotourism. You know, we have a natural uh, rainforest here. We go to the reef. We watch birds. We go to floral gardens. And we even get in some cultural activities in the evening, you know, the steel band and so on, because uh, it's timed just before a carnival activity. You know, and the the package completes itself with different samplings of local cuisine for dinners. We go to different places. So it's a nice full cultural mix. Awesome. You, you're absolutely making me jealous there because you're, Gladstone, you're living the dream, you know, working with the bees and in a beautiful environment, beautiful part of the world. So so with the, um, just just going back a step, so Trinidad's got the Africanized bees and Tobago's got, yeah. your, 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 you know, your, I guess what, classical European. European honeybees. So yeah, to talk us through that. I've, I haven't interviewed anyone yet who's worked with Africanized bees. What are they like? You sort of describe them to us. Yeah, well, basically they they like European bees, but let's say they with a higher level of defensiveness. Okay. But let me quickly say I've dealt with European bees that were more defensive than the worst Africanized bees I've been exposed to. Wow. You know, yeah. So, hey, I've been to, I was in Appalachian Island in 2005. I've been to Ireland, and they got some bees there. They're not easy. <laughs> <laughs> All over you. So, so yeah, the example this year, um, you know, we had a group of seven people from the U.K., um, we, when we went to Trinidad, and the guys were saying, you know, are these the Africanized bees? They were extremely well behaved. Wow. They're not like that all the time. Sometimes we've had to vacate the a little earlier than we wanted to. You know, so um, there's a steady stream of bees coming in from South America uh, through Venezuela. So um, the island is 100% that's Trinidad, Africanized bees. 
uh, all the beekeepers, well, they've been there since 1979. So it's a whole new generation of, of beekeepers, of new beekeepers. Okay. But when they came in, there was a complete, a big fallout of the traditional beekeepers. And now it's, it's, it's managed. You know, quite a number of swarms. They swarm a little more. Um, they do everything a little faster. They fly faster. They fly almost straight into the hive. They don't land on the landing board and walk in kind of thing. And, um, well, you need to, you need to be mindful where, where you locate your colonies. Okay. Um, because they swarm faster, they, they could be a public hazard. Um, and as a matter of fact, they have, they have, they have beekeepers in Trinidad who earn supplemental income doing swarm removals, you know, on a regular basis. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Okay. So they're actually doing that. And so they're saving the bees, saving these Africanized bees. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about productivity? Gladstone, are they, are they bringing in the honey? How does that, or producing honey, I should say? Yes. It's, it's said, and I may be inclined to, to go along with it. Because I've done beekeeping on on both islands, that they are a little more productive, but the the drawback is because they swarm a little more. If you look at a colony, let's say over a year, you know, it, you may get some honey early up front, and then it, it swarms on you, right? Okay. So let's say a season or two, it, it would average out. But yeah, generally they they're a little more brisk. They're a little more defensive. Yeah, you know, they're a little more hyper then. Okay. okay. If I can put, put it that way. Yes. Okay. And what about Varroa? So there's Varroa in Trinidad and Tobago? Yeah. Yeah, we got we got Varroa in Tobago in, um, in 2000. And interestingly, Ben, they found it in my April 1st. Guess who found it? <laughs> that was on the very first safari. Okay. You know? Because we've been reading about Varroa, but of course you think uh, it's not going to come here just yet. Yep. Um, we know Belos, which you know sort of looks like yes. Varroa in a way. Yes. But interestingly, um, let's say a week before a visit, one of the beekeepers who was on the safari, you know, they were going through my bees. And he said, Gladstone, you, you got Varroa. I said, no, it couldn't be Varroa. It's probably Belos. Yes. He said, no, look. And, hey, it was Varroa. Everywhere we went, because that was at the start of the safari, yes. we found Varroa in, in, in everybody's apri on the island. But I'm making the point that, uh, I think less than a week before, um, two beekeepers, um, you know, we, we have a, a great camaraderie. Yes. Um, invited us in and say, hey, something wrong with my bees. Bees are just crawling all over the ground and everything else. We didn't, I said, we've been reading about Varroa, but you know, on, until you get it, you think it's, it's not going to come just yet. Anyway, we cut a sample of brood and we sent it to the Central Science Laboratory in the UK. Yep. So by the time it was identified by the visiting beekeepers, we got word from them, let's say two days after, that no pest and disease, but they got varroa. Wow! So you know that's <laughs> that's the story. Uh, but because they were here, um, persons with experience with varroa, they help us through it. We immediately at that time brought in some, you know, 
chemical treatment. The, the, the decline, we lost about 40%. We have about 700 colonies on the island. We lost about 40% of that. Um, so, you know, we were able to get some ad- experience, advice, um, treated it. We arrested the decline. Um, we had, well, you know, like a second bout, but this time it was, you know, the parasitic mite syndrome. This was the two to three years after we had a particularly wet um, rain season. Um, and maybe we relaxed a bit, you know, something like how what's happening with COVID now. Yes, yes. And we lost another 50% of our colonies. So we this is on Tobago. Yes. And I'll tell you about Trinidad very, very quickly in a little while. Um, the next move, we, we imported some allegedly vora-resistant vo- bees from, from Hawaii. Okay. Um, some Italians. Uh, I'm, I'm talking now of 2004, 2005. Yes. Over the years, because we do have a fair amount of um, visiting beekeepers, we, you know, we have a great interaction, especially from the UK. So we always um, benefit from their visits, you know, they, they conduct little workshops and so on. So we manage Varroa now, um, different treatment regimes from oxalic acid. Very few people, we don't use epistan again, some use integrated methods um, and so on. In Trinidad, most beekeepers would tell you that they don't treat. Okay. And one of the reasons for that, I think, has to do with the highest swarming propensity for the Africanized bees because of the disruption in the brood cycle. Um, you know, the populations may, uh, overall may not be as high. You see, and the proliferation of swarms is an opportunity to replace all the time. So you have a more transient um set of bees in Trinidad in terms of their swarming pattern. Um I know beekeepers that treat, but I think the majority will tell you that they that they don't treat. I suspect the bees may have I mean I haven't tested it or anything, but slightly different hygienic behavior okay. coupled with the swarming. Those may be factors. Okay, that's that's interesting. And what about other brood diseases? Do you have um, um, European fowl brood or American? No, no, we we haven't. Um, you know, before the rob, this was a beekeeping paradise. You know, yes, you put out <laughs> you know, um, diseases and so on was something that you read about in the journals. You know, it wasn't part of your day to day experience. Wow, that's all you had to treat with. Yeah, basically was was belows, you know, and that doesn't do any major damage. But I must say that since Varroa, we haven't been seeing any belows at all. I don't know if the Varroa replaced them. Um, we have wax mud, but you know that's an opportunistic yes. test. So yes. Yes. once a colony is up to mark, yeah. So our biggest um, challenge now, generally, with European bees. Is um, varroa and you know the viruses that the viruses that they bring. Yes. Okay. And and uh, Gladstone, what what about uh-huh. what about the seasons? You know, you, you mentioned you know you got a wet season and a dry season. 
Um, so yeah. how do you manage your bees? Like what's a, like a, during the whole year, what, what's your plans? How, yeah. how, many, how do you manage them? All right. So, well, you, you, you're in a temperate zone and you do have your autumn and winter. Yes. Uh, so that would, that would in a way parallel our, our rain season. Okay. Um, yeah. So we have rains, say from, from June to mid December. And it comes in slowly and, and, and goes out the same way. So there's a transition period. Um, basically, well, at the onset of the rain season, the foraging um, options are, are much lower for bees. Uh, but but let me let me quickly jump to, to say November, December, which um, November, October, November is usually our wettest months in the year. And that's that's the equivalent of maybe, um, you know, the heights of winter. Um, your colonies would be at the weakest then. That's the most vulnerable point. Okay. Okay. So you may have to feed as the case may be. You put your colonies literally in, 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 in lockdown mode, you know, you reduce the entrances and, and so on. You may even put a sheet of galvanized. We don't wrap colonies here um, because of the ambient ambient temperature, but you may put a sheet of galvanized to take some of the rainwater off it. Okay. Um, but let's say you're into December, that's when you're, you're going to do a bit of feeding. You want to stimulate brood production. That's your your spring preparation, I guess. Yes. Um, build up the population. Uh, by January, you're going to have some flowers coming in. So you would do some feeding and you would stop once natural vegetation takes over, so that by February, March, April, you have you enter honey production period. Then um, the flows are not because we have an extended period. I do not comparison with with temperate beekeeping. Um, we don't have let's see, we have an extended flow period, which could be. Uh, say February to to end of May, right? And inside there you may have two peaks. So you would here we normally take out um honey three or four times during the season. We don't wait till the end of the season and then do one one meter harvest. Oh, okay. Yep. Right? And um, we'd average we'd average I would say uh, three and a half four four imperial gallons. Colony, um, we are experiencing effects of climate change um, in terms of uh, this the cycle. You know, the the peaks and troughs in terms of the flow pattern is not as steep as it used to be. Um, this year, twenty twenty in particular, was a, a standout year in terms of uh, it was very poor for honey production. It was extremely we don't normally have droughts and stuff like that, but you know, for some reason it was extremely, extremely dry and and hot. Okay. Um, but you make it through to the end of May. You know the rain's gonna come. Um, the queen is gonna slow down laying. That's the time you're going to harvest whatever honey you intend to harvest. Uh, we have one or two species that would flower during the rain season. They have a lot of you know tropical vines and shrubs 
um, so that the bees would be doing a minimal amount of foraging. Certainly not enough to um, bring in a crop. And the stronger colonies may be able generally to maintain themselves. But uh, coming into October, uh, you know, at the end of the rain period, um, you have to pay attention to where colonies are. That's when you're likely to lose some if, um, you know, the season was a little more than you expected. Okay. So generally, it's, it's an extension of, I think, what happens in, in, in temperate regions. We don't have, let me just train one thing, we don't have monocultures here, you know, um, multifloral honeys. We don't have extensive fields of clover or, or anything else. So, so, what, so you know, it's, it's interesting, Gladstone. So, so mm-hmm. what, what type of honeys do you get? So, what is there one you said you don't have sort of um, monofloral honeys? So, what like describe your, yeah. ha- describe your honeys and, and the flowers that happen um, at the bees? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 so we have we have um, forestries that the bees would forage on uh, mahogany. Some that you may know. We have a, a range of plums. Um, some hardwood trees, cypress, sip, uh, even the, the pui, which, you know, is a very colorful tree. You get some nectar from that. Um, coconuts, which would give you all your uh, nectar sometimes, um, well, pollen too as well. Multiplicity of vines, shrubs, um, ornamentals. Um, but our best variety, the equivalent of, well, I don't know if you have Manuka there in Australia, but we have um, a species called uh, Gloricidia. Okay. It's uh, yeah, it's actually used for animal feed, and the um, you can stick a, a, a post from it, um, and it would it would grow fast. You know, it's so it's used for hedging, so it's. It's all over the place. Um, it's a good source. Uh, we have another variety, and this is one that its uniqueness is that it would start a flower at the onset of the rain season, so it's excellent for, for beekeeping. It's called fiddlewood. Okay. Um, but we have the citrus, range of mangoes, um, range of plums, uh, so many... <laughs> So many things, um, you know, lots of the lots of the fruits, the guavas, uh, the flowers, the you know, uh, cashew. Um, we have the cubits in terms of agriculture and so on, the pumpkins. So it's a multi-floral, multi-floral mix. The uh, you may be able to detect um, this has a glory a glory cedar flavor in it, yeah, because you have a heavy. Heavy stand, and you know, there's um, well, it doesn't flower exclusively at that time, okay. But you know, you can develop your taste, but clearly, no, no distinction. Our best distinction, our best description of our honey would have to be um, multi floral, okay. Multi, and is it a light honey, Gladstone, or a darker honey? Would you say, as far as gun? So, you. You run the full, you run the full gambit from um, very light, not not like water white, but the lightest yellow. That would be a Gloricidia, and the 
the the um texture of it that's that tends to be silky and that flowers uh, february march you know when the temperature is up so our viscosity our moisture content would get as low as a 17 and a half you know if you leave it on the hive a little longer during the dry period it may come down to 17. Okay. Yep. um yeah uh, the, the the forest trees, the bigger trees, um, usually give you a darker honey. Eucalyptus, you know, I think you may be familiar with that. We have yes some varieties of that here, right? So you get them. You you run the gambit um, from the very light yellows um, with a milder taste uh, to the to the the darks going into bronze that. Um, and let's say because of my, our experience with the English people, we know that they like a milder honey that doesn't leave after taste in your truth. Okay. But yeah, but yeah, you know, um, uh, orange grown in Florida and orange grown in the tropics, you know, it's interesting. Guys, and there's a little robustness in our taste. It's like rum and whiskey, maybe. I don't know if there's an <laughs> analogy that may ring a bell. <laughs> I like that analogy, rum and whiskey. So, and, and with honey, people buying honey, they treat it. I remember we, we were talking in Canada. They, they treat um, the honey more as a medicine. Is that that's, that's correct? Yes, yes. Tra- traditionally, um, and let me train one thing before, and, and this may inform. You know, the European bee is an introduced species to the Western Hemisphere. It came in with the, yes. um, with the colonists in the 16th, 17th century back there. So we do have what we call the indigenous bees would be stingless bees. Um, we have about four species in Tobago. The biggest, um, Melipuna fovosa, it's about, just about half the size of a regular honeybee. So their colonies are smaller, smaller population. Um, but the, the honey, and we've had it tested um, from various sources, and it's been described as being of a better medicinal value. It has more hydrogen peroxide and so on in it. Wow. But interestingly, it has a higher moisture content. Um, 22, 23%. That would be the average. Okay. And yet it, it doesn't, it would not ferment. It doesn't ferment. So, so, um, we've had that in, as an early part of the culture. Um, you know, it's a, stingless bees are found across the tropical belt. Uh, so tr- traditionally, and, you know, going back to the earliest times, um, when, let's say the, there wasn't the extent of deforestation. They were more, the, the stingless bees were more what ubiquitous available. They were more around in the communities and they were more a part of the culture, even though there were the European bees. Um, but that was a more selective something that the, the local honey, stingless bee honey, was always a part of, of, of medicines. Um, or treated as medicine. They would use it as eye drops to uh, cure cataracts and this sort of thing. Um, the European honeybees came into that mold. So, you know, the classical, you have a, a coal, honey and lime, honey and lemon, 
honey and turmeric. You know, you soak different roots in honey um, to do your extraction and so on. But it has gone within the been within the last uh, six seven years. Um, the the demand for honey has literally gone through the roof. Okay. You know, we used yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, well, I think it's obvious health health concerns. But um, sugar, and this is white sugar or brown sugar, which was like the standard sweetener here. Um, I don't know. Uh, people became very health conscious. And um, a lot of people have started to use honey as, you know, a basic sweetener. They're having a cup of tea in the morning or, or, or so, um, as opposed beverages. To, as opposed to sugar. Okay. And, and Gladys, what about, price, just out of interest, what about pricing? Like, like what would um, a kilo um, of, yeah. of honey cost, roughly? Yeah, so so uh, our standard um, size is the rum bottle, which is, well, two and a half pounds. You can see like almost a kilo. Yes. Um, yeah. And, right. So the, the price for that, if I can convert it very quickly, would be uh, 16 to 18 Pongs, well, you know, using a currency. Okay. I converting it to 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 UK pongs. Um, might be easier for you to convert to Australian dollars. That's about twenty. So it compares. Wow. Hmm. That's about twenty. Yeah, it's about twenty about twenty five Australian dollars for a kilo, which is really good. That's a great price. You know, that's a really really yeah yeah it 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 is it is a good price. Um, you know, interestingly. Uh, we have a prohibition on the import of honey. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that goes back to, yeah, 1935 legislation, which I think was a follow-up to when, when they had an acrine mite um, outbreak in the UK. And this is earlier in the, in the um, I think, 1904, 1905, somewhere around there. But I've checked um, and I've seen that there were several uh, legislation, I think even Australia, I don't know if I remember correctly, uh, maybe around the 1920s, if not before, with the outbreak of what I call the Isla Rai disease in, in, in the UK. You know, most of the Commonwealth countries, I think, responded to that with some kind of legislation. Yes. Ours went the full distance of prohibiting the import of honey. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's some pressure on the government now, um, with countries in our region, um, given the trade agreement, to replace prohibit with, with restrict. <laughs> you know, prohibit suggesting that it can't happen at all. So we have a, we have a closed market, but what has been happening a late, um, given our proximity to South America, is that there is a fair amount of um, illegal imports, some of it adulterated okay. on the market, you know, but we understand, you know, that we know what's happening globally in terms of um, adulteration and, and, and honey trade. Yes, but it's, it's, it is um, a significant part of our culture, uh, the use of honey, 
um, not just for health reasons, particularly uh, spiritual ceremonies. Um, people have feasts or um, uh, different types of prayers. The honey, because of its perception of purity, you know, the, the nectar, the gods, um, the food of the gods, then it's usually on the on the table. You know, when you're having what we call here a week or a repast, somebody dies and you're having a prayer for them. Yeah. Okay. So it has a place in in religion and culture and and the culinary arts as well. How, fa- how fascinating. And more so high products too. That's, that's really super interesting. Um, yeah, real and a cultural sort of aspect. They're saying it's on the table if there's a, a wake or something. So, um, and on what about the future? What is the as far as beekeeping in Tobago? What does the future hold? Is there like is there young beekeepers? Because as we know, you know, beekeepers are yes. older. So is there how's how's that coming through? Is it on a hobbyist type level? Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting question because we our age profile. Um, for uh, beekeeping now, so you have you have some old stages like me. You have on the island. You have in terms of active beekeepers, somewhere in the low forties, right? Um, and most of them, because we we did some surveys, and let me just drill back a little bit. After Varroa, we drew in when Varroa came in two thousand. We lost about half of the beekeepers on the island. We went down to about 15 or 16, you know, something like that. And for most of that decade, you know, I think somewhere along 2008, 2009, the numbers started to pick back up. Now it's it's peaking, as I said, somewhere at um, low 30s, 40s. There is growing interest. So if you look at the experience profile, you'd find a high percentage of beekeepers with less than... Uh, say five, six years experience. Okay. And um, on that one end of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, you have um, a half a dozen guys like myself. And we have ladies to involve in beekeeping. So, so guys is, is um, neutral gender. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you have, yeah, you have a couple of people with say over 25 years experience. Um, but the demand for it is there. The, the sector is growing. You know, we we have entered the London Honey Show. Um, well, we used to for maybe 13, 14 years, going back to, from 87 to 2001, when EU regulations kicked in and we weren't able to send entries. But we've, we've done quite well, um, you know, winning the Hender Cups and, and stuff like that. So we do have a reputation for having um, quality honey, you know, and um, it's marketed somewhat upscale as as a take-home product. That's one of its appeals, too, um, in terms of the, the safaris, and um, we do have groups requesting visits to the breeze and so on. But most of it are small holdings. Um, we have... On the island of Tobago, as I said, 116 square miles, 60,000 people. You have one beekeeper who I think has just crossed 200. You have two with over 100 um, uh, between 50 and 100. I think you may have another two or so. But the, the rest would be 
um, under 50 and in the lower under 20s. Okay, interesting. That's and what about you? Sort of mentioned obviously the, the honey gladstone. What about the other products? Is there is there a demand for you know pollen, wax, propolis, that type of thing? Yeah. Um, so we because you know uh, beeswax has a, we have an interesting clientele for beeswax and um, people who do surfing and so on. Um, we used to use it a little more in the arts and craft for, for batik, but not so much. Pollen is picking up, you know, with some deliberate marketing. Um, but and we have we do have a couple of people, including my wife, who makes um, shampoos, hair shampoo, conditioner, facial cream soaps, all with the use of of honey. Okay. Yep. Uh, we do have when we have you know exhibitions and so on. Yeah, it's it's quite keen. Um, but you know, these are basically cottage industries. Um, we need to sort of take it to the higher level in terms of uh, packaging and being able to compete with, you know, some of the standard imported brands. Yes. Okay. And um, yeah. and uh, last question, uh, Gladstone. Bees. What's the best part about beekeeping for you? What's that part that you love? You know, I I, I like that question. Um. I can tell you the part that I, I don't like. Okay. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Too much. Yes. Which is which is extracting and so on. Yes. But I love the part that I love interacting with the bees. Yes. I love opening up colony and hey, so you do have records and you have expectations. But the challenge of seeing something different and coming up with with solutions, you know, they, to me, bees keep you mentally agile, they keep you challenged, um, you know, sometimes just being in their space, being within that, that big buzz, you know, being sort of absorbed in their will. Love it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, just sharing, sharing the environment with them, you know, in a, in a sort of, Personal and intimate way, I I, I see my um my apri is my church, you know that's that's where I communicate with with Nadia in a very special way. I love it, Gladstone. And you know what? It is for me. You know, one of the best parts about beekeeping is the connection with people. You know, other beekeepers because. You know, we met, um, as I said, overseas in Appamondia, and uh, I was lucky enough to to share your birthday with you. I think you turned, was it 70 at your birthday over in Canada? Yeah, yeah, we had had this little, we had this birthday dinner. But let me just roll you back. I think um, even before that, if I don't, you know, there was this company, I I guess I can just call you an inviter. They had a reception before. Um, I think the day before the Congress actually started, and, you know, I think we, we, we did have Bong's class there or something, as we say. Yes. And then we, we would have met several times, you know, during the Congress. But yeah, you shared my 70th birthday. We were out having dinner. And, um, yeah. Thanks. I remember, I, you know, I, I, and what you're saying there, Ben, it, it manifested because I'm saying to myself, you know, I'm being totally honest here. But, you know, this is a, a curious guy. He's, he's asking me some interesting questions about beekeeping. So in terms of your interacting with people who mind bees, you manifest that at our, early at our first meeting. Yes. 
which is not very usual. Okay, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it stood out, it stood out. That's interesting. It's, I yeah. think you want to know what what makes people tick into the beekeeping oh, world. I do, and that's why I wanted to, you know, do this this uh, podcast and and you know talk to amazing beekeepers like yourself and and share the knowledge yeah. and, and just everywhere around the world is something different and obviously we've got bad times yeah. at the moment with this virus and uh, we can't travel at the moment but you know i'm trying to bring you know trinidad and and more importantly tobago to people's homes and and hearing your stories your passion and so forth so yeah. i i absolutely love it and um I, I just want to say uh thank you so much gladstone i really really appreciate your time and i look forward to um to seeing you uh are you gonna go to russia Next year, if it all happens, the Apple Hey, man, I had planned to, but you know, with COVID and everything, you got to do a whole revaluation now. Oh, no, that's true. It's going to be chilly in 23, so, you know. Yes. Well, I may just have to skip. I know. If, well, if I miss you in Russia, I'll tell you what, I sure as uh, we'll be seeing you in uh, in Santiago and Chile. So, uh, once again, Gladstone, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you're an absolutely beautiful soul, and I'm really good to talk to you again. My brother, it's a pleasure. It is, it is a pleasure chatting with you, and thank you so much all. Thank you. for your consideration from me in Australia. <laughs> right? Thanks for having me on the podcast. And hey, man, um, England mashes up in cricket. We're gonna take it out of you, you know, <laughs> some stage. <laughs> Take care, my friend. Thank you. All right, my brother. Yeah.